Good evening. Welcome to Pigeon Post. Uh, most of the time this happens in the car while I'm driving somewhere, but this is one of those times where I need to read things and I can't do that while I'm driving. So uh, I'm laughing because <laughs> I'm in the closet right now at our house and it's like 2 a.m. Uh, but I hear we get to fall back an hour, so that'll be nice. Um, but yeah, I'd much rather be going to sleep right now, but, um, I also want to do this, so it's kind of a conflict. Um, the reason why I want to do this is because I love people, and, um, I want people to, it's like Paul said that he betrothed, um, I forget what church he wrote it to. But he betrothed them as a as a pure virgin to Christ. Um, that he wanted to see faithfulness, basically, um, in the people that he taught about Christ. And um, so what I try to do on Pigeon Post is to, first of all, share the gospel. And secondly, talk about things that um, I think will help will help the people close people close to me or things that I think people aren't talking about that need to be talked about. Um, that needs to be talked about. I'm not sure if I said that correctly. It's 2 AM fam. <laughs> um, so here we go. Uh, so two weeks ago I met with a Catholic priest in the area where I live. Um, I just got on a website of a Catholic church and just said that I wanted to meet up to discuss some things um, because I have um, family who are Catholic and I'm concerned about them or friends who are Catholic, family friends, um, etc. who are Catholic and I'm concerned about them and want to understand um, some things better. And um, so very nice priest, uh, nice gentleman, um, got back in touch with me immediately, emailed me and set up a time really immediately in a couple days. And so I met with him on a Saturday morning uh, two weeks ago. And um, I thought about, you know, asking if I could record the conversation, um, but I really didn't want it to be like that. Um, it wasn't very confrontational and I didn't want it to be confrontational. And even now, I, especially being two weeks removed from it, I took notes. I can tell you some exact quotes um, that he said. But really, I just want to use that conversation and what I recall from that conversation as a jumping off point um, to talk about some of these issues. And... Um, so I'm not going to use his name or tell you what church um, he was with um, because this isn't about um, some kind of debate um, that I'm having with a particular person. It's about what is the Catholic viewpoint on these things and why is it concerning to me. Um, so I got an opportunity to talk to one of my family members who's not Catholic but used to be. And... Um, I hope that person enjoyed the conversation. I, I did, and I think it was a good chance to kind of clear the air. And I think, for my part, um, the people that see what I post on Facebook 
or hear what I talk about in Pigeon Post and uh, friends that have gone from being Protestant to being Catholic or even Eastern Orthodox is included in this to some degree. Um, I don't know what I've done wrong. I know that my tone has been wrong sometimes and um, I've apologized. I, I, yeah, I think, you know, on several of these podcasts and so, and I've invited those people to listen to that, but I, I've also, um, I know in particular one person I've apologized to directly, um, just because my tone hasn't always been right with that person. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we disagree that we have to apologize because we disagree. And it doesn't mean that we can't disagree boldly. Um, so, um, I haven't toned down the disagreement, but I think that I tend to want, you know, just to speak the truth and not always to speak the truth in love. And um, so I hope that um, God will give me the ability to be both gentle and bold um, because scripture calls us to be both. So there must be a way to be gentle and bold. And um, I I asked uh, the family member that I talked to recently if I if my tone was okay in that conversation. And uh, I think that it was, but, um, yeah, especially for people that don't know me and, um, trying to get the message across on social media may not be the best way to do it. Um, but the message has to go out. So I can only try to keep improving the way that I get the message out and um, hope that people will give it another chance, give it another listen. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're going to be judged um, by, you know, how we've obeyed Christ. And um, my tone um, not being perfect uh, doesn't, doesn't excuse the fact that I mean, I'll, you know, I'll be judged for my tone too, right? Like, um, the Lord disciplines those, disciplines us as sons. And, um, so I have to, to hope and pray that, you know, I'm not leading people, um, away from the gospel with a tone that doesn't complement the gospel. Um, but also, um, Just, you know, if my tone doesn't come across perfectly to you, please, um, please listen to what I'm saying, because the truth is the truth, um, even if I don't always get it right, um, tone-wise. Okay, so let's kind of jump into this. Um, So here was my goal, and I might mess up the microphone here and there because I'll have to pick up my phone a couple times and, and pull up a document. But I got together with this priest, and we only had about an hour to talk. So um, I I had to choose. I knew I didn't have enough time to talk about all the things that I wanted to talk about. Um, and the door was open. It was a you know good conversation. The door is open to go back and talk some more. Um, I'm sure he doesn't get a ton of people, a ton of Protestants who just want to come in and talk about Catholicism um, and ask, you know, questions and open the Bible and stuff. 
So uh, I might do that again, uh, especially if I get some interaction from people listening to this. So if you're hearing this and you hear something that you'd like to respond to um, in whatever way, agree, disagree, whatever, um, you can email me at pigeonpost2019 at gmail.com. That's pigeonpost2019 at gmail.com. So here's what happened. When I went in, uh, we went into this little area, um, like a little chapel area. And we sat down and I had my Bible with me. And my goal was to spend most of the time, and we did spend most of the time, on uh, basically one question. And so I asked, according to to Catholicism, um, well, first off, we spent some time just kind of, you know, talking about where we were from and, and some things like that. He, he um, asked me some things like that. And that was very nice. So I got to just share a little bit about myself. And then I asked him a few things. Um, but anyway, once we exchange pleasantries, um, what I asked him was essentially a gospel question. And that was, how is someone made right before God? And uh, I gave him a couple of rephrasings of that. Like, how is someone reconciled? Or how is someone in Christ? Like, how is someone made right before God? And I was to some degree trying to avoid the term justified because I didn't want it to immediately turn into um, the faith works discussion. I just wanted to hear what he had to say about how someone is made right before God. And so um, this is what he said, and I wrote it down as bullet points, and uh, I'll try to tell you when I'm going to quote him, like when I was really careful to write down what exactly what he said. Um, so basically he said that we, a person has to want to be right before God. There has to be a desire um, in them to be right before God. Um, and then they have to realize that they're sinners. Um, so we're doing pretty good so far. Um, you know, just, I think realizing you're a sinner is, is huge. And, uh, I know that one of the focuses of Catholic theology is sin, that we have original and, um, you know, sin that we actually do, um, and that that's a problem. So that part was good. Um, then he said, um, you know, he worked in this, that God judges people by what they have to work with. And his, his next, his next thing was basically, um, that that person, once they realize they're a sinner and they want to pursue God, um, needs to join us. And by us, he meant, you know, the Catholic church or his church. Um, so they would join them, um, in a rite of Christian initiation, which I guess is the official name of that. Um, and it's a time, as he explained it, to ask questions and to learn more about the Catholic faith. And that, he said that process could take a year or more, and that uh, eventually, if that person had a desire to be baptized, um, that that would be the next step. And so I had to kind of ask him again, okay, well, 
at what point in that process does that person pass from spiritual death to spiritual life? At what point are they reconciled with God? At what point are their sins forgiven? And I think it's really hard for Catholics and Orthodox to sometimes uh, pinpoint that um, objectively, whereas Protestants tend to over pinpoint that, if that makes sense. Like a Protestant might say, um, when you pray this prayer, then you're, you know, then you're in. Um, but I don't think it's always, scripturally, it's not always as discernible about as praying a prayer, because, not because a prayer is bad, but because it's about faith. And um, sometimes we can't always judge our own faith and repentance. But we do know that repentance and faith are how a Protestant would say um, that someone is saved. Um, but I want, I'm trying to focus on what he actually said. So what he said was, here's the point where they pass from death to life, where they're not in Christ and they become in Christ, where they were not reconciled. Now they are reconciled to God, and that is baptism. So he gave me a really straight answer there. So when I, when I explained it that way, he said baptism. Baptism washes away all sin. So someone is reconciled to God when they are baptized. So that's pretty much a word-for-word -word quote of what he was saying. Um, so, wow, what do you think about that? That the act of baptism is literally the thing that washes away a person's sin. Hmm. I'm not sure I want to try to evaluate all that right now. I kind of want to lay out the conversation, um, and then maybe we'll get to, like, you know, evaluating, because that's not what I did. I didn't open the Bible and disagree with him right there. I just wanted to know what he said. Um, so one thing I did do for clarity, though, is I, I opened the Bible to Ephesians 1, and just to clarify what he was saying, um, well, I think I, this is two weeks ago, so like I said, reconstructing this conversation is a little problematic, but um, I think I, I kind of poked around at the idea or asked him, like, you know, is that like secure? Like, you know, is that baptism like mean they will always be reconciled to God? Um, and his answer was no, that, um, that when you sin, that now you need to go to a priest and, get that sin taken care of by coming to a priest. Um, so, before I get into how I kind of uh, asked about that, that whole like, you know, is, is salvation, you know, kind of a once for all thing, I did ask him, ask him um, you know, after he presented, you know, what he thought was reconciliation, which was essentially baptism in the Catholic Church. I said, hypothetically, you know, if there's um, a person that goes through that same type of process, but in a Protestant church, would that person be reconciled to God upon baptism? And his answer was that he didn't really know. Um, 
I think it had to be like a Trinitarian. Because at first he was like, well, I don't know what kind of formula for baptism they're using. So it, it sounded to me like that. And what I asked him was, okay, it's, well, it's a Trinitarian formula, you know, the same thing that you guys do in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And um, his answer was still that he didn't really know. So he couldn't give me assurance that the same process uh, that happens to save somebody in the Catholic Church would be as effective or effective at all in a Protestant church. Um, so sounds like you really need a Catholic priest in this whole matter. Um, so then to talk about whether that is secure in any way, shape, or form, I went to Ephesians and I read just a couple of phrases out of chapter 1, but really you could read all of chapter 1, because chapter 1 tells us what we have in Christ. So I said something, something like this. Um, okay, in Ephesians 1 it says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, um, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, um, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So those things sound like promises that are secure to me. Those things from Ephesians 1 about being in Christ, being redeemed, they sound past tense, like it's done. And he said that everything is lost when you sin. And I specifically clarified with him, every time you sin, yes, every time you sin. So um, whether you think he's representing Catholic theology well or not, I do know there's a distinction between moral and venial sin. But the point that he was making um, was that those things are not secure. And I'm quoting him when I say that he said, everything is lost when you sin, every time you sin. Um, another thing that he said, I can't remember if he said it at the same exact time or not, but he also said, um, and this might have been my paraphrase of what he was saying, but I wrote it down after he said, yes, that's what I'm saying. Um, he said, every willful sin is a choice to disconnect from Christ. So, um, according to Catholic theology, according to this priest, at least how he was representing it, and he wasn't young and wet behind the ears, he was an older guy. I think he said he had been a priest for 28 years. So he said, sorry, I'm drinking some coffee here. That if you want to become a Christian, you get baptized. If you want it to be legit, it has to happen in the Catholic Church. That's how you get reconciled to God. How long does that last? I don't know. Every time you sin, you're choosing, you're making a willful choice to disconnect from Christ. And so, now I ask you, is that the gospel? And like I said, I wasn't there to debate him, but I did for clarity's sake, um, read some scripture. And I can't remember the exact verses that I read. I was trying to honor his time, and I knew I didn't have a ton of time. Um, 
So I skipped around a little bit, but I believe I read some of Romans 5 because that is what I wrote down here. So I'll read that to you. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Okay, and then further down to verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now a couple things there. Um, if it says that we've been justified by faith, and that we've been justified by his blood, and that we're standing in his grace and rejoicing in the hope of his glory. Does that sound to you like every time we sin, that all of that is lost? Or even those verses from Ephesians about all the promises that we have in Christ, that we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Does that sound like every time we sin, God goes back and says, no, you're not born again anymore. Right? So, like, the Holy Spirit is causing you to be born again. But then every time you sin, God's like, I don't know if you're really my kid anymore. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't, I'm not looking to prove this through an extra biblical story. I, I'm using an analogy that is scriptural, okay? That we are adopted. Ephesians and Romans both say that we are adopted, that we've been given the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Does that analogy, that real spiritual reality, it's not even an analogy, it's a spiritual reality of being adopted into the family of God, does that mean that every time we sin, God says, you're not my kid anymore? There's no way. There is no way that that in any way coheres with what scripture says. And there's also no way that baptism is the thing that makes us right before God. Um, now, I didn't say all of this to the priest, but I'm saying it now. Um, it was pointed out to me um, in this really great video that I watched that Cornelius, uh, which I'm going to have trouble finding this, I'm off the cuff here, in, in Acts, okay, um, Peter goes to Cornelius, um, who was a centurion, a God-fearer, but not a Jew, but somebody who was, um, I believe, seeking after um, the God of the Jews. In verse in Acts 10:44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is poured out on these new believers who are then speaking in tongues and glorifying God. And it was very obvious, they were amazed, that this was happening. 
Okay, and then what does Peter say? Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, baptism is not what made them Christians. It was the first thing that they do after they become Christians. The Holy Spirit had already been received by them. So they were already sealed with the Holy Spirit. So don't tell me that baptism is the seal. Because we see in this scripture that it's not. It's the Holy Spirit that is the seal on the person. Um, and they were already receiving that before baptism. Um, very problematic to say that baptism washes away all of your sin. Um, the thief on the cross, Jesus said he would be with him in paradise. Um, was he baptized? I don't think so. Um, Catholics get around this by saying that there is such thing called the baptism of blood or a desire to be baptized. Um, where are you getting that from? You're just making it up. It's not in scripture. Um, baptism is the next step. Um, baptism is the symbol of what's happening there. And furthermore, you know, like we said before, like every time you sin, really, you're, you're losing grace every time you sin. I, I don't see it in scripture at all. Um, there was another thing that he said on this subject before we move on. Um, what was it that I read to him? I feel like it was in Romans 8, I think. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Um... It says at the end of chapter 8, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if the justification is happening, that, according to this, the ones that he justified, he also glorified. So there aren't going to be people who were justified and then lost the justification and didn't get glorified. In fact, there aren't going to be people who were predestined who then were not justified. This is like a chain, right? Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Like all those things are bound to happen to a person. Um, so when I tried to kind of press that idea that Jesus died once and for all, um, he specifically said, and I wrote down this direct quote, if what Jesus did on the cross was one and done, why would he give his apostles power to forgive sin? So that was his objection, right? 
because I think what I had said was that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And I said, what do you think that means? And he said, it just meant that his work was finished on the cross. Right. Um, so then according to him, it doesn't mean that anything is objectively finished about our redemption, just that Jesus's work was done on the cross. Okay. Um, and, and he says, if what he did on the cross, if what Jesus did on the cross was one and done, why would he give his apostles power to forgive sin? So basically, Jesus needs the Catholic priest and has God's will, apparently, is for the Catholic priest to forgive your sin and for you to have to keep coming to that Catholic priest to get your sins forgiven, to have any assurance of hanging on to your reconciliation. Um, that's not scriptural. You won't find anywhere in the New Testament where God tells us that we have to go to a priest in order to get our sins forgiven. Now, he was referring to Jesus breathing on the apostles, I believe, and saying that they had, you know, some kind of power to forgive sin or whatever. Um, the problem with that is there's nothing in the New Testament that says that that is connected to priest doing that for all Christians for all time. Um, so whatever the verse means, it doesn't mean what the Catholic interpretation is, um, because it's just not there. We're supposed to confess our sins one to another. Um, we're supposed to go to someone if we have um, an issue with them. Um, there's, you know, a process that we go through. But, I mean, what does First John 1 John 1.9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there a mention of a priest anywhere in there? No, there's not, because we don't need a priest. Jesus is our great high priest, as it says, I believe, in Hebrews. And he is the one mediator between God and men. So the problem is that instead of a salvation by faith, there's a system that's set up whereby you have to do things. And when you do those things called sacraments, those things are effective when they're done. And that is how you stay right before God. So you need the Catholic priesthood. That is a system um, that you really can't be saved without. Um, so before we move on, I want to visit um, the Catholic Catechism. And maybe with Trent here, let me see. Yeah, I think I'll read some of the Council of Trent, which is referenced. Um, so I'm not pulling this document. I, I, I found this document through the footnote of uh, the Catholic Catechism. And all the councils, are those are legit, according to Catholicism. So you can definitely read from there with authority. So according to Catholic authority in the Council of Trent, which was the council that happened after or during the Reformation, for, in which Catholics kind of said, um, we're not going to be reformed. Okay, so go away. 
Um, this is what is said in one of those canons. This is on the sacraments. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law were not all instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord, or that they are more or less than seven, to wit, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, order, and matrimony, or even that any one of these seven is not truly and properly a sacrament, let him be anathema. Now, anathema means you're not part of the body of Christ. Um, some will say that it means as strong as, like, go to hell. Um, so, according to this Catholic document, if you don't agree that there's seven sacraments and that those seven sacraments aren't the particular sacraments that they're saying and that Jesus Christ himself didn't institute those seven sacraments, yeah, you're not going to heaven. You're probably not even going to going to make it to purgatory. You're anathema. Um, there's lots of other anathemas here, um, but I want to read. Um, at least one more of these on the sacraments. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous and that without them, or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God, through faith alone, the grace of justification. Though all the sacraments are not indeed necessary for every individual, this is legalese. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> if I read all of these two, you would fall asleep, because... Number one, it's not Bible. And number two, it is so law. I mean, they even say, they don't call the gospel the gospel, they call it the new law. So this is the new law, right? Like Jesus died so that the Old Testament law with all of its rules and regulations could pass away and give way to what? Oh, a brand new set of priests with a brand new prescription of laws and ridiculousness. Um, look, the Old Testament law was holy because it pointed us to Jesus, and it pointed us to the perfect lamb, and it pointed us to the mercy seat, and it pointed us to um, that which is perfect. And when that which is perfect came, that which was in part passed away. And the temple, you know, in God's... Um, plan was destroyed in AD 70 and there's not even a temple in Jerusalem anymore because one is not needed, right? Jesus is building us up into the holy temple. Um, this is a spiritual reality. And um, this whole thing about, you know, they're so anti-faith alone. Why? Guys, Faith alone is just another way of saying that Jesus did it all. And religion, excuse me, um, in the human heart hates that. Naturally, the system that Satan sets in place to, to be a false gospel is going to always put it on man. Um, because it's 
that is the mark of a false gospel, is that it puts it on man to save himself. That your faith has to be in this system of priests that God never ordained in order to achieve salvation that God already accomplished. Brothers and sisters, this is this is bad. Um, when I talk to my family member about this who has Catholic sympathies and used to be Catholic, but is definitely not anti-Catholic by any means. I asked him, so this is the gospel that this priest told me. I told him about it, and I, I asked him, you know, if I were to go out to the park and preach this gospel, come be baptized. Um, once you're baptized, you'll be reconciled. You know, the, the, the gospel that the priest gave me. And then every time you sin, you need to come back to me and confess your sins. Would anybody really come to know Christ if I went to the park and preached that gospel? Hey, people might respond to it, but would they be hearing the true gospel? Could anybody be saved with that being believed? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Nobody can be saved under that because that's not the gospel. So are there Catholics that are Christians? Yes, there's Catholics that are Christians. Do they believe what this priest said? No, they don't. They can't because we have to be saved by a simple faith in Jesus Christ and what he did. And what he did is not institute a system by which you can be saved but to give you salvation through his blood. Listen to what it says in Galatians. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I, or if I am trying to please man... Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. <laughs> read Galatians, please. I implore you, read Galatians. If it wasn't a big deal for a gospel to conflict with another gospel, let's just say this. What the priest is saying is the gospel is antithetical to what I am saying is the gospel. We both cannot be right. If there were two Gospels, Paul would be lying here. Paul says there's not another Gospel. There's only one. And Paul says, this is the one I taught you. And even if I come back, or we, he says, so anybody in his clan, he's not being facetious here. He's saying, if I lose my mind, or if somebody else in my clan comes by and, and tells you something different, even if an angel from heaven comes down and tells you something different, don't believe it. Let them be accursed. So let's look at that. The Catholic Church says, 
if you don't believe that the sacraments are the gospel, you, you are accursed. So, as nice as modern Catholics are um, about this thing, because all Catholics are not as hardcore, right? The official teaching of the Catholic Church is that if you say it's not through the sacraments, you're accursed. What is the official teaching of the Bible? Paul says, if you say it's not of faith alone, and we'll talk about why he says alone there. He doesn't say the word alone because I know Catholics will challenge me on that. But let's just say faith then, okay? If you say that it's not by faith, you're accursed. So you have the Catholic Church in direct conflict with Paul and Galatians. Now, brother and sister, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Paul? Forget about me. I have nothing to do with this. If Are you going to believe what Paul said? Or are you going to believe what the Catholic Church said? Because in Galatians, Paul doesn't say anything about seven sacraments. Nothing. Okay? He does not say anything about seven sacraments. His whole argument in Galatians, um, these aren't people that are getting the Trinity wrong or the deity of Christ wrong. I know a lot of people say, well, Catholics, you know, they believe in the deity of Christ and the Trinity, so they're saved. Paul doesn't... Paul has no indication that the Galatians are getting any of that wrong. All that they're doing is adding one work to salvation, one sacrament to salvation. And Paul says, if you add that law-based sacrament to salvation, you're accursed. And if I come back or an angel comes back and tells you anything like that, anything different, they're a curse too. I mean, <laughs> why? Why? I, I cannot fathom why. I, I'm astonished, just like Paul is, that I have friends who have heard the gospel of faith alone in Christ and are turning to a different gospel of sacraments. That, Jesus, that, that when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he didn't mean your salvation was finished, buddy. He just meant that his work was finished. And now your work has to start if you want to be saved. I'm sorry I'm getting worked up, but that's garbage from the pits of hell. It's, it is not the gospel. And as Paul says here, if it's not the gospel, it's a curse. Now, who comes up with curses? Who comes up with false gospels? How can you be, how can you claim to be the worldwide church of Christ and preach a false gospel? It's not possible. It's not possible. Please read Galatians. It's very clear. Um, in, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's exactly what the Catholic Church just said in the Council of Trent. Cursed are you if you don't believe that this is the way that it goes. And, and the implicit thing is that you're cursed if you don't do them. You have to do the sacraments. It's the, it is a system of law. It's just under a different name. Sacraments. 
which they even call it in there, the new law. But what does Paul go on to say in verse 11 and 311? Now it is evident that one is justified, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Does he add anything to that faith? So Catholics will often say, like, he doesn't say faith alone. But he doesn't say anything else. He says faith. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's what the sacraments are. The one who does the sacraments, do baptism, do the priestly confession, do the penance. That's how you live that is antithetical to what Paul is saying here. That the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. <sighs> oh, man. I hope somebody's listening to this. I hope. Many people are listening to this. You're on my heart right now. All right. Let's see here. So after talking to the Catholic priest about being made right before God and seeing that we had completely different views on that, um, I got all worked up there. I want you to hear what the Bible has to say. I don't want you to base any of this on my own uh, emotional pleas or anything like that, because that's worthless. Here's 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the, re the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's reconciliation. To be in Christ, a new creation, in which the old has passed away and the new has come. Not to be kind of in Christ and kind of a new creation and the old hasn't really passed away and the new hasn't really come. The Catholic gospel interrupts all of those sure promises of God and says, now, oh, did God really say that? Brothers and sisters, that's what the devil said in the garden. Did God really say that? Ephesians. I'll let you read Ephesians 1. But Ephesians 2, on passing, this theme of passing from death to life. 
being a done deal. And you were dead in the trespasses of sin and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here's the change. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, we were prepared for good works, but we were not saved by works. And those the idea, I don't even like to talk in terms of faith and works because we're talking about two different things with Catholicism. Um, they claim that uh, they believe that we're saved by faith and works, but then are the works good works? Is it like doing good things for people or is it sacraments or is it both? They're conflating all kinds of works together. Paul says it very clearly. We're not saved by works of any kind. We are saved unto good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them. But that walking comes after being saved. Um, it's only possible to do the good works and to walk in them after you're saved, but you're never saved by them. It doesn't say that. I would encourage you to read Romans 3 through 6. I'm tempted to read it all right now, but I won't. Um, chapter 7 is kind of an aside. So I would read Romans 3 through 6 and then Romans chapter 8. And it's so clear that we're saved by faith. I have to read some of it. I might really struggle if I don't read some of it. I think maybe the end of chapter 3. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that God, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if 
I don't know how Paul can make it any more clear that it's about faith, not works, and it's about God's righteousness, not ours. How many times does he say God's righteousness in there? And then he clarifies it by saying that God is just and the justifier. He doesn't say God is the justifier of the just. In fact, uh, where is it in verse 4, 4, uh, 4, 5 in Romans? <clears throat> he makes it so clear, brothers and sisters. <laughs> he talks about boasting at the end of chapter 3 that we can't boast. In 4, 3 he says, For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So how can Paul say that salvation is a gift if it's something that is due to you? If it's something that you do something to get, it's wages. It's not works. I mean, it's not uh, a gift. But Paul never says that salvation is wages. Salvation is a gift. For it to be a gift, it can't be of works. It can't be of any kind of works. It can't be helping the old lady across the street, getting baptized. It can't be any of those things because it's a gift. And what does he say in 4.5? And to the one who does not work, but believes. Now, when a Catholic says, the Bible doesn't say faith alone, brothers and sisters, what does that mean? The one who does not work. That means not works, right? But believes. That's faith alone. That is faith apart from works. The words are there in Scripture. It's just that we don't want to see it. And what does Paul say? But believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And that is, the, that is a key difference. Uh, the Catholic theology says that you are going to be accepted when you become righteous. It's an infused righteousness. And they'll say, oh, but that, that becoming righteousness, it's still grace because God's grace is what's allowing you to become righteous. But that is a twisting of scripture. Paul says very clearly right here, it's not grace if it's not a gift. It has, it's his whole argument. It has to be a gift if you're going to call it grace. Otherwise, it's wages. This is a gift to the one who does not work from the God who justifies the ungodly, not the God who justifies the just. <laughs> it's not God making you righteous so that he can justify you. It's God justifying you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Finishing that sentence, his faith is counted as righteousness. 5.6 For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It happened at the cross. This priest is incorrect. The words, it is finished, as Paul's interpreting right here, is talking about Christ dying 
for sinners. We are involved in the transaction at the cross. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Where did that happen? At the cross. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. What is the priest telling me? I can't be reconciled to God as an enemy. I have to stay friends with God. I have to make myself stop sinning to obtain and sustain the reconciliation. That's not what Paul's saying. He says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And we should keep going because Paul says that it is through one man's trespass that death reigned, right? But through one righteous act of Christ, the one man Christ, the new Adam, through his one righteous act, the many are made righteous. That's huge, guys. Like, if you ask, I didn't ask the priest this, but if you ask Catholic theology, okay, official Catholic teaching, if you could just, if it was, if it had a Siri, right, a Catholic Siri, and you said, how many acts of righteousness does it take for a person to go to heaven? I imagine it would be a lot. For one thing, there's a treasury of merit that is being stored up that penance interacts with and has access to, and that's how people get out of purgatory in this ridiculous, ungodly, unbiblical system that is set up. If you ask Catholic Siri how many acts of righteousness, it would be quite a few. What does the Bible say? and says one act of righteousness. If you ask Catholic Siri how many acts of righteousness by how many people save us, well, it would be lots of people. You have to have your own acts of righteousness. You have to get some acts of righteousness from the treasury of merit, which comes from the saints and Mary and Jesus. So the Catholic theology says many people doing many acts of righteousness is how you get to heaven. But Romans 5 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is some sick stuff. <laughs> I mean sick in like the, the rap terminology, street terminology. Okay. Like this is awesome. This is like the best news. It's different than all the other news. If you line up all the religions and you say, which one of these is not like the other? It's the gospel that comes from the Bible that Paul taught in Romans. That's the one that's different than all the others. 
that's the one you should choose. It's like a multiple choice test. Catholic theology is a facsimile of all the other ones. It's not the truth. If you're still with me, I did ask the priest about Treasury of Merit. We didn't talk very long about it. Um, he basically said that it was the fruit of saints and that the merits of others are applied vicariously to get others out of punishment. So it's a, it's a conglomeration of these um, things that other people have done that somehow or another get applied to other people's accounts. I thought I had it pulled up, but there is stuff about that in the catechism. Um, but that wasn't the focus of my conversation. But basically, it's what we just talked about. These are acts of righteousness. These are meritorious things that others have done. They get applied vicariously to people after they die to get them out of punishment of purgatory. And we didn't really talk about purgatory very much. I think he just said it was a cleansing or purifying. Um, I, just a side note, I don't, I don't think he really, I felt like he didn't know what the treasury of merit was. I had to really kind of ask him to get to that answer. Um, he was talking about like the church building being sort of like a treasury of merit, you know, that somebody else built it and, I guess he was using that as an analogy that you get the um, the benefit of somebody else's work. Problem is, we don't get the benefit of Mary's work. We get the benefit of Christ's work, not Mary and the saints. Okay. Um, so I think that brings us to the last thing to talk. Well, no, there's two more, two more things. So I really wanted to ask him a ton of things about Mary. I really only asked him one thing. I read in Romans 3.23, which says, um, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal. No, wait. No, I'm sorry. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I asked him, does that include Mary? And he said, no. That excludes Mary. Everybody but Mary. She's the exception. And Jesus, right? So, when the Bible says all of sin falls short of the glory of God, Catholicism quite boldly says, uh, no, not Mary. Um, and I actually looked up, I think it was Catholic Answers, what their answer was to that. And they said, well, it doesn't specifically say each and every person has sinned and falls short of the glory glory of God. So it's using all in this real general way. Um, the problem with that, <laughs> oh, this is not a good laugh. I, this is a, I'm sad laugh. Um, the problem with that interpretation is that all you have to do is back up to verse, um, 10, uh, where it says, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. 
in verse 12, not even one. So how are you going to say that Mary is an exception, that it was in Paul's mind that Mary was an exception to this, and he specifically quotes the Psalms where it says, not even one. No, not one. Paul is specifically trying to lock up everybody under this charge of sin. If Mary was left out, I think he would have told us. Furthermore, I'm not going to get into it here, but I think you can find some places in the Gospels where it's pretty clear that Mary was not without sin. Um, yeah, I, I'm just going to stop there on that one. But um, if you want to believe that the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there's none righteous, no, not one, and then a verse later, not even one, he says it twice, and you want to believe that there is one that's righteous, that there is one who hasn't sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, um, I don't know what to say to that. I don't think anything can be proven to, to you from Scripture if you are unwilling to obey Scripture. If you're unwilling to believe what is so clear in Scripture, then you might as well not have a Bible. I mean... That's what the whole authority problem is. If we are going to have a magisterium that can trump the clear teaching of Scripture, then what do we need Scripture for? What do you need it for? That, that's what I think <clears throat> becomes a problem with Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. There are some great things in tradition. There are some great things in those um, two, you know, traditional elements or what, whatever, however you want to say that. But the the major fatal flaw is if somebody does what Paul says is going to happen, right? He says um, that others will come in after him um, trying to lead the flock astray and doing so, you know, Um there's no indication that churches will not fail. I mean, even in the beginning parts of Revelation, Jesus is telling us about churches that he's going to take away their candle stand. So Paul knows that false teachers are going to lead people astray. He warns them that they shouldn't pay attention to angels or whoever tells them a different gospel. And so does Jesus in the same sense. Why would we go with an argument from authority? Paul and Jesus don't do that. Paul and Jesus don't say, hey, just follow the apostolic authority that's set over you and you'll be all right. No, there's a responsibility to believe the gospel and to keep believing it long after Paul is there. The gospel is the authority. You see, if, if, if somebody comes to you bringing a different gospel, they've lost their authority. There isn't any authority to claim. But if a stranger comes to you bringing the gospel, then that stranger has some basis to teach you. It, it's, it's really unbiblical to say, I've got authority so I can bring a different gospel. Don't listen to what the scripture says. Listen to what I say. 
how how do we not see through that, brother and sister? I we need to see through that. Yeah, I you have to see through that. Uh, one of the things that I told this person, um, this family member who I was talking to about Catholicism was, you know, I understand that there are Catholics um, who believe the gospel. My my question and my concern for them is, if you can sit in this Catholic church for 30 years and listen to non-gospel or even anti-gospel and and people having you putting your trust in this system that is anti-gospel for 30 years where is the holy spirit in your heart where is your submission to scripture that's my concern not that it's impossible for somebody to be saved in the catholic church i'm sure it is possible i'm sure there are many christians in the catholic church but why are they staying there? And furthermore, why are why do I have Protestant friends who have either great sympathies for that or who have full-on converted to Catholicism? That's a problem. It's one thing to be just ignorant of, of the fact that it's different for a while and, and having to, to come out of that. It's another thing to go into it or to stay in it for years and years and not see the difference. So I want to read some of what the Catechism says about Mary. And I want you to consider whether this represents what I've been told by most Catholics, which is simply, we ask Mary and the saints to pray for us. And that's all it is. So I've been told that several times. Where they say, well, don't you ask your relatives or friends or people in your church to pray for you? Yeah, so that's what we do. We ask Mary to pray for us. What's wrong with that? Well, nothing, I guess except that you're not supposed to talk to the dead. That's a whole different argument, and I'm not going to make that argument here. What I'm going to do is read from the Catholic Catechism about what Mary's role is. And you judge for yourself whether you think this compromises Scripture and compromises Jesus Christ himself. So, uh, 964 Um, paragraph 964 in the Catholic Catechism. Mary's role in the church is inseparable from her union with Christ and flows directly from it. This union of the mother with the son in the work of salvation is made manifest from the time of Christ's virginal conception up to his death. It is made manifest above all at the hour of his passion, Thus, the Blessed Virgin advanced in her pilgrimage of faith and faithfully persevered in her union with her Son unto the cross. There she stood in keeping with the divine plan, enduring with her only begotten Son, 
the intensity of his suffering, joining herself with his sacrifice in her mother's heart and lovingly consenting to the immolation of this victim born of her to be given by the same Christ Jesus dying on the cross as a mother to his disciple with these words, woman, behold your son. Um, really? <laughs> that she was, do you believe that Mary was enduring with her only begotten son the intensity of his suffering, joining herself with his sacrifice in her mother's heart? Do you believe that the cross was a work of Mary and Jesus? Roman Catholicism does. And if you're a Catholic and you don't believe that, then you need to get out of that church. Because Mary did not suffer on the cross for you, brother and sister. Jesus Christ did. And if Mary heard, I'm not sure what her awareness is in heaven, she definitely is not omnipresent or omniscient. She cannot hear everything that people are praying to her all at once. But if Mary heard what I just read, she would be appalled and she would denounce it as a false gospel because I do believe Mary was a follower of Jesus Christ. But she certainly did not participate in his work on the cross. That's a lie from the devil. Nine sixty six. Finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things. Really? So that she might be the more fully confirmed, conformed to her son, the Lord of lords and conqueror of sin and death. The assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrections of other Christians. So not only, brother and sister, did Mary participate in Jesus' work on the cross, now we read that Mary participated in his resurrection in a special, unique way and that she is queen over all things. She participated in his exaltation. And they go on to say, In giving birth you kept your virginity in your dormition. You did not leave the world, O Mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceived the living God. Did Mary conceive the Holy Trinity? You know, this whole mother of God thing is a real play playing around with words because they say, well, she, Jesus is God. So she's the mother of God. Is that what people think when they hear the word mother of God? That she conceived the living God? Was the living God conceived? Really? Was the living, the living God began in Mary's womb? This is, I understand that they, that it's a theological, like, we can get around this because Jesus is God, but this, these are very misleading statements. Anyway, you conceive the living God and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. Really? 
So by Mary's prayers, our souls are going to be delivered from death. By Mary's prayers. <sighs> Why? <laughs> Why, Christian? Why? Why would you go to a church that says this? You know this is wrong. You, I don't, I can't fathom it. All right, if that's not enough, I'm going to read 969 on Mary. From I'm reading directly from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You can get it in any half-price bookstore for five bucks. Read it. It's 969. Here it is. This motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect. Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office. Mary has a saving office, according to the Catholic Church. But by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Mary has a saving office and continues to give us the gifts of eternal salvation. Ellipses. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles. Here come, here come titles of Christ or the Holy Spirit or God that the Catholic Church is giving to Mary. Are you ready for this? The titles Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. That hurts my heart to have to read that. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And they call her Mediatrix, which is just a female version of Mediator. Why would we ever believe that? Okay. Um, so the last... Um, I know this is probably going to be the longest episode ever of uh, Pigeon Post. It's already going on an hour and a half here. Um, thank you for listening, if you're listening. Um, trying to give you the full picture of what is involved in being a part of the Catholic Church. And if you're Catholic, I just beg of you to reconsider. Um, I wanted to talk to him about a lot more things. Um, like I said, I just asked him that one question about Mary, but I went ahead and read the catechism for you so you could know. Um, then I asked him one last question. Now, I kind of got to this question myself when I saw, I don't even know where I saw it. I think it popped up on Facebook, but I don't know if it was even somebody um, criticizing it. Somehow I ran across this video, and you can look it up. It's um, Prayer Intentions of of St. Francis. I think it's from like January of 2016 or something like that. Um, 
But if you look it up, and it just you can type in like prayer intentions of Saint Francis 2016. Um, maybe type in interfaith or um, what would you type in to YouTube? Um, type in like uh, Muslims, Buddhist, um, something like that. Basically, Saint Francis in this video says that all of these faiths should be praying together. Um, and the strong impression that you get is that he believes that we're all praying to the same God. I mean, can a Christian pray with a Muslim? Um, I don't know. <laughs> so my last question to uh, the priest was, do Muslims worship the same God? And I must say he stumbled a bit on this question. Uh, I feel like he was genuinely trying to give me the right answer. And it, he kind of, I, I tried to kind of, as he was trying to answer the question, I kind of tried to influence him in, in how he was answering it. You know, like I gave him some time to kind of stumble through it a little bit, you know, and he said, well, I, it, it was almost like he'd never thought of the question before. Well, you know, um, yeah, we, we both believe that there's one God and, um, you know, he was saying things like that. But then, you know, I said, you know, but, you know, would, would a Muslim call God father? You know, I don't remember exactly how the thing went down, but it's almost like we both sort of like talked ourselves into the right answer, which I was very encouraged by um, because he more or less concluded there um with a little bit of, you know, talk between us that you can't have the father without the son. I mean, it's an undeniable crystal clear statement of Christ that he whoever denies the son denies the father. You can't have the father without the son. A Muslim won't even call God father. Um, so there's no way in any stretch of the imagination <laughs> that we're serving the same God at all because there is no way that they have the Father because they don't have the Son. Um, so after we sort of arrived at the right answer together, then I asked him, well, doesn't the Catechism say that we worship the same God? And so he looked it up. He had a copy of the Catechism. He gave me a copy, um, which was nice. I don't have a copy anymore, so it's nice to get another copy. And he started reading right here. Now, he went on to read much more um, because my, my guess is that he was trying to resolve that with what we had just said. You know, we just... Him and I had basically just came to the conclusion that no, there's no way, right? And then so he looks it up and he reads this. So he was just reading out loud and he kept reading and that was fine. But I'll read you the, the pertinent part here. 841 from the Catholic Catechism. The church's relationship with the Muslims. The plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham and together with us 
they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. Now it goes on to talk about non-Christian religions, but I find it interesting that it gives Muslims this special place um, right after it talks about Jews and, and their relationship to the church or something like that. Um, but that's what it says. The plan of salvation also includes those dot, 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 Muslims um, who together with us adore, and together with us, they adore the one merciful God. So according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Muslims worship the same God that Christians do. Um, and I would venture to say that that priest would never admit it. I would hope that he would eventually. Um, but that is in conflict with what he and I, um, in our basic Bible thinking that we did in those two minutes, knew was wrong. Um, that the catechism, and clearly Pope Francis, if you watch that video, thinks we can all pray together because we all worship the same God. So, um, let's see, how can I wrap this up? It's pretty late. I am doing all of this talk about Catholicism because I want to see Catholics in, in the truth. I want to see us all walking in the truth. And like Paul says, that he wants us not to be led astray from a simple devotion to Christ. Um, if you're Catholic and you're listening to this, I just encourage you to... Um, well, here's what I encourage you to do, or to not do. I think some Christians would encourage you, and this might be an inclination to pray about it, and that if God gives you peace, to just do what God gives you peace about. Which means that you could pray about it and stay in the Catholic Church, despite everything I've said right now. Don't do that. <laughs> pray about it for sure. But brother and sister, the answer is in the Word of God. God is going to hold you accountable for what he says in his word, his clear commandments. We are not able to pray ourselves out of the truth of God's word. If you, if, The interesting thing is if you talk to a Mormon and you ask them, how did you become a Mormon? They will inevitably say, I read the book, or why are you a Mormon? I read the book of Mormon and I prayed about it. And God confirmed it with his Holy Spirit in my heart. The problem is, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that about finding the truth. In fact, in Acts, it says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they looked in the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. 
Paul is an apostle. Why would the Bible say that they were noble for looking in Scripture instead of believing his apostolic authority? Because there's no such thing as apostolic authority in the Catholic sense. We aren't supposed to close our Bible and believe what the Pope says or believe what apostolic authority says. And even the Holy Spirit says that they were noble for confirming what a real apostle said by looking in Scripture. So I encourage you, pray. That would be great. Pray that God would open your eyes to Scripture, not to a special feeling in your heart. Feelings in your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. What is a feeling in your heart going to do? The Bible tells you what is true. If I'm saying something wrong in the Bible, please. if I'm misrepresenting what the Bible says, please show me. Please show me where I'm misrepresenting what the Bible says. If I'm misrepresenting what Catholicism says, please show me that too. But I sat down and talked to a priest who clearly told me what reconciliation with God was about. Who clearly told me that Mary trumps Romans. That the church's doctrine of Mary trumps the Bible. And who clearly, or unclearly rather, disagreed with his own catechism but couldn't admit it to me. That Muslims worship the same God and that they're included in the plan of salvation. Everyone's included in the plan of salvation, but not because they're Muslim, <laughs> because they turn away from their false gods and go to the living and true God. Thank you for listening to this really long edition of Pigeon Post. I say all that I'm saying with all the love in my heart that I want us to be unified under the one Christ and the one gospel. And if anyone preaches a different gospel, even if it turns out to be me, let him be accursed. Because Christ became a curse that we might get the blessings of the gospel through him. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the great exchange. This is the gospel. And uh, I'll die before I I stop talking about it. Have a great night.